0: You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, May 6th,
1: 2021. I'm Koda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news, and I go over complications with the Hughes Stadium site. After that, Jonathan Gillum will update us on
0: CSU's athletics. And then, as a commemoration for this being our last episode, I'm featuring highlights from my two favorite interviews of the semester with Robin Vincent from KUNC, and Dr. Cedric Jamie Rutland from the American Lung Association. Then
1: Coda tells us about Biden backing a World Trade Organization proposal to bar COVID-19 vaccines from being patented. And then you'll be hearing my greatest hits from this semester with interviews with Dr. Ray Black and Usama Al-Shabi. After that, I'll be giving you information on COVID-19 statistics
0: and explain how the West Coast is now covered by the earthquake early warning system.
1: To conclude the show, I tell you about a man who won a legal battle to keep the teeth of a shark that attacked him. Let's move right into campus and local news.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to my final newscast of the 2021 spring semester here at Colorado State University. Finals are next week, and I hope everyone is making it through those. President Joyce McConnell announced that the process of returning classrooms to full capacity for the fall are underway. In a separate announcement before this, President McConnell also announced that students will need to be vaccinated before the fall 2021 semester. The fall semester also hopes to change all classes back to in-person. The Pandemic Preparedness team will be releasing more information as the 2021 fall semester approaches. Today, on Thursday, May six, CSU graduate workers are marching to demand living wages and to end prohibitive fees. The CSU Board of Governors and President Joyce McConnell will be meeting to discuss budget options, and the march will occur during this time. Graduate workers want to be prioritized in the budget after research brought to light that grad workers pay more in fees than any other peer university and receive lower than average monthly stipends. The Graduate Workers Organizing Cooperative will be meeting at 3 p.m. in front of the CSU Administration Building. The Undie Run took place last Saturday and despite university warnings, a crowd of over 800 attended and few wore masks or kept social distance. For more on this, visit thecollegian.com. Registration for all summer and fall courses is now available. Students can go to RAMweb to register. Thanks, everyone, for such a great year at Colorado State University. I hope everyone has an amazing summer break. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review once we restart in August, and thanks for listening to KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to 90.5 FM.
1: Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your local news for today the Fort Collins City Council voted to rezone the Hughes Stadium site as open space in accordance with the first half of this year's voter-approved ballot measure. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Colorado Inn, now that the council voted unanimously on this rezoning, the next half of the ballot measure will involve the city purchasing the site from the Colorado State University system. Council entered a 75-minute executive session at its Tuesday meeting after the zoning vote to discuss legal questions around the acquisition attempt. They took no action after the closed-door session. The council's vote on rezoning evolved little discussion. Council member Shirley Peel says that she was concerned about the precedent the ballot measure was setting for private property rights, but added she was obligated to support the election result. Most council members had expressed to the Coloradoan in advance of the vote that they intended to honor the will of the voters, as is required after a successful ballot measure. The vote, though decisive, didn't answer many questions about what will happen next with the land. The new zoning doesn't allow for ho- housing, a transit center, an urgent care clinic, a child care center, or most of the other components involved in CSU's plans for its property. CSU representatives, however, told the Coloradoan in an April 22nd statement that a city ordinance is not binding on CSU. A letter from the Colorado Attorney General's office to the city in April details CSU's plans for developing the land without reference to the ballot measure, which about 69% of voters approved in the April 6th election. The citizen group PATHS, which stands for Planning Action to Transform Hughes Sustainably, gathered more than 8,300 signatures from registered voters to get the measure on the ballot, following a deadlocked council vote on rezoning the property last year. CSU's Board of Governors is expected to discuss the Hughes site at its Thursday meeting. The status of Fort Collins's anticipated purchase offer wasn't clear on Tuesday night, and it remains unclear if CSU will accept an offer from the city. A CSU representative said last month that the university system has several options for the property going forward and will consider offers from the city. CSU previously rejected a $7 million offer for all but 10 acres, an offer that CSU System Chancellor Tony Frank described as too low. The Loveland man who held two salesmen, including a black Colorado State University athlete, at gunpoint last summer has been sentenced to probation. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, former police officer Scott Gudmanson, 66 years old, was sentenced to four years of supervised probation during a Tuesday court hearing. Gudmanson pleaded guilty to menacing with a weapon, a Class 5 felony, during a March 18th court hearing. Six other charges will be dismissed by the 8th Judicial District Attorney's Office as part of a plea agreement. Gudmanson was arrested in June after he held two roofing inspection salesmen at gunpoint and knelt on the neck of one of the men, who was later identified by CSU Athletics as a black football player, because he thought they were members of the Antifa movement, according to his arrest documents. The CSU football player, Barry Wesley, publicly identified himself and shared his story with Sports Illustrated in August. Gudmanson was not charged with a bias-motivated crime, also known as a hate crime. Wesley, through his attorney, filed a motion in December requesting 8th Judicial District Judge Michelle Brinegar forced the district attorney to file a bias-motivated crime charge against Gudmundson. Brinnegar denied the request. Wesley's attorney, Benjamin DeGoyla, told the Coloradoan that they were disappointed a hate crime charge was never filed in this case, especially with Brinegar acknowledging quote, the racial aspect of this case, end quote, during Tuesday's hearing. If a hate crime charge had been filed, DeGoyla said it would likely have been given... Brinnegar harsher sentencing options to better protect Wesley and his family. As part of Gudmundson's sentence, he is required to comply with the Larimer County Alternatives to Incarceration for an Individual's Mental Health Needs, the AIIM Program, wearing a GPS monitor for at least th- the first three months of his sentence and complete 100 hours of com- community service. Gudmundson is also not allowed to possess any weapons or consume any alcohol or substances without a prescription. Colorado Governor Jared Polis signed a new law Wednesday, which expands access to and use of cannabis-based medicine in schools. According to Alex Burness at the Denver Post, the bipartisan law, State Bill 56, removes the authority that school principals currently have to permit or not the storage and administration on school grounds of non-smokable cannabis-based medicine, which is used to treat seizures and other ailments. Once the new law takes effect this fall, school boards will be required to implement policies that allow for the storage and administration of this medicine by school personnel on school grounds. Any school staffer who is uncomfortable performing these duties can recuse themselves, the new law states, but officials cannot exempt entire schools from the law. The new law was widely popular in the legislature, securing votes from 90 of the 100 state lawmakers. As the legislature expands access to cannabis for school-age patients, it may also look to restrict certain non-medicinal cannabis products. A bill more tightly regulate high-potency THC products and limit access by children is expected to be introduced in the coming days. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Coming up next, we have the RMR Sports Report. Stay tuned.
3: dead week Rams and CSU KCSU listeners it's Jonathan Yellen for KCSU sports and it is our last RMR sports update of the semester it is also my last update because I am graduating next week I want to wish you all the best but let's get right into it first of all Colorado State Athletics Hall of Fame nominations are now open you can go to csurams.com and nominate a legend that you think should be in the hall of fame next csu after a disappointing season has announced the release of the women's soccer head coach bill hempen Uh, he will not return next season finally we have a couple events this weekend softball is going on a three-game series against San Diego right here in Fort Collins. First game is at 12 p.m., second game is at 2.30. This is on Saturday, and then the final game of that series is on the 9th Sunday, and that is at 12 p.m. Rams sports somewhat will continue during the summer. You, of course, can keep track of this on csurams.com forward slash calendar. I want to thank everyone else for everything and the news department, of course, my colleagues over there for my last and final time for kcsu sports i'm jonathan Gillum, and i'll catch you next
0: due to various ethical injustices performed in the medical field specifically to black communities and indigenous communities vaccination access and interest has been unequal between white communities and minority communities in the u.s To address these issues, the American Lung Association partnered with the Center for Black Health and Equity to provide a toolkit to these communities in addressing any key questions about vaccines and encouraging these communities to make well-informed decisions about whether or not they should receive the vaccine. I spoke to Dr. Cedric Jamie Rutland from the American Lung Association about this, and he and I spoke mostly about why it's important to make sure that these communities are being heard and why it's important to empower them to make this decision Dr. Rutland is a pulmonary and critical expert who works with the American Lung Association. And we really focused on the Tuskegee effect, which refers to the longstanding history of medical experiments and racial bias in healthcare specifically aimed at black people and the effects caused from these experiments. Some of these experiments include the Tuskegee experiment as well as the famous Henrietta Lacks case. Her cells have been used to create treatments for a variety of illnesses, including HIV and cancer but her family didn't even know that her cells were being used until recently. Now I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Rutland about how COVID-19 vaccine efforts have been complicated by this issue. Thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. What do you think right now is one of the
0: biggest issues that you're facing in making sure that people know how to get vaccinated, know when they're
4: eligible? Yeah. One of the biggest issues that we're facing is really, you know, there's a couple of them. One is access to vaccination, right? That's a big issue. And then another issue is actually understanding what it means to get vaccinated and why it's important to do so.
0: Definitely. And then what do you think is an issue in terms of making sure that these local clinics are really impacting the community they're in and getting people vaccinated when they're ready?
4: Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, the local clinics need to have an understanding of who's eligible and really they need to have a way of getting people vaccinated in general. And when you go to lung.org, what you'll be able to do on lung.org is you'll be able to download a toolkit that's going to help you with COVID-19 vaccination information. It has a significant amount of information on this toolkit. And it sounds like a lot when I say it's 35 pages, but it's not 35 pages of text. It's 35 pages of beautifully written information that allows people to understand the science of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, and a vaccination so they can make an informed decision. It's not about just telling someone to go get vaccinated. It's about arming them with the information so they can make that decision themselves.
0: The Black community is specific to vaccines and other medical procedures um, has a lot of trauma related to the Tuskegee experiments. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how you're combating that along with the American Lung Association?
4: Yeah, um, we understand that the experience of being Black in this country isn't always a positive one. And when you look medically, we've been experimenting on. Tuskegee, Cincinnati Radiation Exper- uh, Experiments, many other experiments that have happened to us. And so we have to admit that these things happened, which is why the mistrust started. But we also have to develop a way to communicate correct science. We have to communicate that although these things happened, it doesn't mean that science is wrong. Um, and we gotta do that in such a way that allows people to receive this information, absorb this information, and make their own decision based on information that was given to them by trusted resources like the American Lung Association and Lung.org.
0: Kind of relating back to that, why do you think that empowering these people to make their own decision and your community make their own decisions is the most important part of this.
4: Because nobody likes to be told what to do. If I told you to get up and go over there, you'd be like, wait, what? No, but again, when you are telling people what to do, people are gonna get immediately defensive. So when you tell somebody, go get a vaccine, they're gonna be like, well, I gotta get a vaccine. Why are you trying to tell me that? But if you tell people in general that they are, Need to understand the science of respiratory illness and the science of vaccination. It makes it so much easier.
0: Just relating to misinformation, how that's impacting minority communities, I know that Facebook has had a lot of issues in moderating Spanish content properly. How do you think that this is impacting people's understanding of the vaccine and COVID 19 in general?
4: Well, I think it gets in the way, right? Because anything that's well produced can be believable. And so when you continue to allow misinformation to run rampant on these platforms, just because it looks pretty or it's well-produced, people are gonna be like, oh yeah, that's right. Even though the science of this misinformation is completely baseless and wrong. So you have to develop an ability to arm people with science so that they can understand how to think on their own and develop their own conclusions that are based from trusted resources like American Lung Association.
0: All right, thanks again. That was Dr. Jamie Rutland from the American Lung Association. For those who might be tuning in just now, we spoke a lot about um, lack of equity in Black communities in relation to medicine and COVID-19 and how this is impacting vaccine access currently. I personally love doing this interview because I found it to be incredibly informative for myself and also it had a lot of potential to empower our community here in Fort Collins who might be a little bit stressed about the vaccine due to historical trauma. Moving on we are going to be talking about avalanches and how COVID-19 impacted those with NPR reporter at KUNC Robin Vincent. This season there were 33 reported avalanche deaths so far. How does this compare with other years?
5: Well, this number already uh, overshadows the number of fatalities for the entire season last year. So this certainly has a lot of avalanche forecasters, uh, snow scientists concerned about safety in the backcountry. I've heard from um, multiple people in that sphere who've uh, described the snowpack as horrific and horrendous, and very, very difficult.
0: So how are avalanches before recorded history really being analyzed to figure out if this is a pattern?
5: Uh, yes, that's that uh, points to some interesting research that Eric Peisch over at the United States Geological Survey has performed recently. He just released a study. Uh, he looked at tree rings dating back to the 1600s to um, piece together an avalanche timeline and this work was uh, presented quite a few challenges if you've ever uh, seen the the aftermath of an avalanche or if you have been unfortunate enough to have been caught in one yourself you know that Um, avalanches are so powerful that they take trees out with them and destroy them. So there were um, issues in that sense for him trying to gather enough trees um, or study enough tree rings. But he and his team were able to paint a picture of avalanche frequency. And he has another uh, paper coming out very soon. um, And he uses... Factors. Um, he further analyzes the climate drivers that played a role in those avalanches. So the hope is um, that he'll be able to connect this research with the research looking at tree rings and and be able to tell us um, has the frequency of avalanches been much greater in recent years as we have watched um, certain um, aspects of the climate crisis propel. Avalanches.
0: So, you spoke to researcher Dr. Yordi Hendricks for a lot of this story. Can you tell me how he also connected the COVID 19 pandemic to deadlier avalanche conditions?
5: Yes. So, he mentioned that anecdotally, what he and other researchers are seeing is this surge in backcountry use. And we know that this is happening because. Uh, avalanche courses have been full, right? Um, Visually, if you head to popular backcountry areas, you'll see that trailheads are very clogged. He mentioned also that there's been an increase in sales of backcountry equipment. Again, this is all sort of anecdotal, and researchers like Dr. Hendricks, they want more um, data. So he and uh, another Researcher from Montana State University, as well as a researcher from University of Nevada, have just launched a survey, and they are hoping that um, as many people as possible are going to fill out this survey to give them a better idea of who exactly is entering the backcountry right now. And the reason that they want to know um, who's venturing out is because that will then help them to craft messaging that will save lives. Uh, Jordi Hendricks talked about um, there at some points when we see declines in avalanche deaths, researchers believe that that has to do with um, good outreach. And so in order to save lives in the future, they want to know Who's out there, then they can craft messaging that speaks directly to um, these users. Why
0: exactly are conditions of the backcountry ski areas more dangerous?
5: Sure. Yeah, this is uh, emblematic of climate change models, essentially, and that is that um, avalanches reflect the weather. This is how it was described to me by um, researcher Dr. Yordi Hendricks. Because avalanches reflect the weather and weather patterns have become more extreme thanks to climate change, uh, we are seeing a, a more unstable snowpack. And specifically in Colorado, that has meant these periods of drought followed by um, periods of heavy precipitation. And so then um, we see a snowpack that becomes um very much unstable um, and ripe for avalanche conditions.
0: All right. And then do you happen to have any information about how users of these backcountry areas can find out more about this survey?
5: So people who are interested in filling out this survey about their backcountry use can visit the following website. It's med.unr.edu slash ski study.
0: And again, that was Robin Vincent from KUNC. She is an NPR reporter, and we talked about avalanches, the rise in deaths during COVID-19 in backcountry ski areas, and now we're going to be moving on to national news right after a quick break. So stay tuned here on the Rocky Mountain Review, and enjoy our last episode until August. I'm Coda Babcock, and you just heard my best moments of the semester. Now for National News Highlights. President Joe Biden announced support for a proposal to waive patent protection rules for COVID-19 vaccines. According to Emma Bauman and Ashish Valentine at National Public Radio, this proposal comes from the World Trade Organization and would prevent over 100 nations from giving patents on the vaccines to manufacturers. Biden's support for this proposal means that privatization of the vaccine would be one less challenge for countries struggling to get doses, and this would allow any country to manufacture these vaccines, along with some COVID-19 treatments. U.S. Trade Representative Katherine Tai said in a statement that, quote, This is a global health crisis, and the extraordinary circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic call for extraordinary measures. The administration believes strongly in intellectual property protections, but in service of ending this pandemic supports the waiver of those protections for COVID-19 vaccines, end quote. The following two stories discuss racial violence. Each article is about a minute in length, with the first discussing police brutality and the second discussing anti-Asian attacks. KCSU News encourages you to learn about difficult news stories, but also wants to protect members of minority communities who may deal with trauma when hearing about these types of events, and empower you all to make informed decisions when listening to our station. Atlanta Police Officer Garrett Rolfe was reinstated to his position Wednesday. According to Richard Fawcett at New York Times, Rolfe was previously fired from his role after he shot and killed Rayshard Brooks in June. Officials determined that his firing was a violation of due process, as the killing is still being investigated. Even with this reinstatement, Rolf remains on administrative leave unless the charges of murder and aggravated assault are resolved either by his indictment or by being cleared of all charges. Rolf shot and killed Rayshard Brooks in June 2020 in a Wendy's parking lot, and his killing sparked protests in Atlanta as well as around the rest of the United States. Two Asian women were stabbed in San Francisco while waiting for a bus in the downtown area Wednesday. According to the Associated Press, the women were 63 and 84, respectively, and the 84-year-old woman was originally taken to the hospital for life-threatening injuries. She was later confirmed to be in stable condition in an intensive care unit by her granddaughter. The younger victim faced no life-threatening injuries, according to authorities. 54-year-old Patrick Thompson was arrested hours after the attack, and investigators are working to understand the motivation behind the attack. This follows a trend of similar violent attacks against Asian Americans, particularly women in the U.S., throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for Ivy Winfrey's Best Moments of the Semester. In about 15 minutes, I'll be back to give new updates on COVID-19
1: statistics. Hey there, it's Ivy, your co-host here at the Rocky Mountain Review. This is our last episode of this school year, and I wanted to take a moment to highlight Two of my favorite interviews I had over the course of this year. My first highlight comes from my interview with Usama Alshaby, a CSU professor and filmmaker. Hello, today we are joined by filmmaker Usama Alshaby, an associate professor at Colorado State University who's produced many short films, documentaries, and feature films, screened at underground and international film festivals, and on television stations worldwide. Mr. Al-Shabi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ivy. So the subjects and themes surrounding many of your films involve the experiences of Arabic and Muslim people, both in and out of America, particularly in the context of um, America's many wars in the Middle East uh, as a part of its war on terror. Um, Would you be able to talk a bit about why your films have this common subject matter and how your personal identity and experiences influence your filmmaking?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I... You know came to the united states um as a child and immediately was you know sort of put us put aside it was one way to think of it or in my head felt as an outsider um and you know i remember when i was in seventh grade i had a global studies teacher that made me stand up and talk to the class about what it's like to be Iraqi or or from the Middle East, which if you can just imagine like being that young and a teacher making you stand up and talk about who you are, and where you're from as if you were some sort of novelty or some sort of exotic animal, you know, and I I don't think he had ill intentions, but um, it was that sense that, i was different and that feeling carried over even when i returned back to iraq because i had partially grew up in the united states so you're correct and like a lot of my themes deal with you know being being an arab being from the middle east coming from a muslim background and even my fiction films delve into that um but i think the the core of it is the sense of feeling like an outsider and having to answer um to that and not just being able to to be a person um and so I I it was it was you know I started to focus on these themes but as I was becoming a filmmaker I you know after I graduated from film school when I was in Chicago in the 90s um And going into 2001, after September 11th and the attacks on the World Trade Centers, uh, I started to notice that the language around Arab and Muslim people started to get more violent, more racist. Uh, Keep in mind, there's always been animosity and vilification towards Muslim and Arab people. But after September 11th, it was kind of a free for all. And the thing that probably disturbed me the most was that um, President Bush at the time was trying to make an association between Iraq and the terrorist attacks on September 11th and Iraq had nothing to do with it and somehow convinced a very ignorant uh, population that it was acceptable, morally acceptable to, to invade Iraq. So, you know, it was it was... Partly like me looking around and and seeing that no one, not a lot of people were making work about being Arab American and also a kind of rage, a kind of outrage motivated me. So that's this sort of like the core of it, what got me going.
1: My next highlight is with Dr. Ray Black an assistant professor of African-American studies at Colorado State University, who I spoke with about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King as part of KCSU's Martin Luther King Day celebration. Do you think that uh, Dr. King's message has new context or increased relevance um, in modern times, especially in the wake of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020?
7: The question of Dr. King's message, and most people I would, safely assumed having taught black history at Colorado State for the last eight years and you know been a black studies, studies scholar for the last 20, most people have two points of entry into Dr. King. Uh, one is the uh, speech at the 1963 March on Washington, well, otherwise noted the I have a dream speech, and they only listen to certain parts of that or the often assigned uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, Dr. King wrote and spoke up until his assassination in 1968. So the question of which message are you talking about? Consistent, his message was that black humanity, black lives, African-American lives, Negro lives, however you want to depict Africans and their descendants in the United States, that they deserve uh, equal treatment, equal rights, equal humanity, that is consistent. As he moved from toward the end of this life, when he's opposing the war in Vietnam, uh, uh, and the the famous speech that he gave at Riverside Church in 1967, called Beyond Vietnam, he notes that the move to have the resources put in place to achieve civil rights and equal rights, the resources are being diverted to the military, both the actual bodies african-american men in particular who were drafted and sent off to war uh to, could be who were then killed injured or maimed or otherwise harmed uh that drains the resources but also the financial resources so the war on poverty as it was called to where you would have uh housing decent housing decent health care decent schools in african-american communities african American communities that were created because they were specifically segregated. Uh, You know, we can go on all about how redlining prevented African-Americans from moving out of Black neighborhoods uh, into other neighborhoods so that you would have the Black doctor and the Black lawyer living next to the Black criminal and the Black custodian in the same neighborhood because regardless of your income, regardless of your desire, you could not move out of. Uh, the south side of Chicago or certain sections of Oakland or Harlem, New York. He was just prevented legally. So Dr. King's message towards the end of his life, he was in Memphis, Tennessee, to help the sanitation workers there, some of whom, the the and the condition with the Black sanitation workers was, if you were got the good job, the, your your only task is you could pick up the garbage at the end of the truck. You could never be a driver. You could never move up into the department regardless of your skills or your abilities or desires. So he was there to support economic justice, to support resources allotted so that if you did work, you had a living wage, and you had safe working conditions. That is all part of what he called the Poor People's Campaign. So his message varied throughout his lifetime and understand and responded to the needs of the period.
1: And that brings up another um, question I wanted to ask. You said that people only quote like specific parts of his I Have a Dream speech or the letter from Birmingham jail. With recent times with the recent Black Lives Matter protests, uh, many politicians have pointed to Dr. King's messaging as a way to both either criticize or justify the protests. Uh, Do you think there's any misrepresentation of his messaging in contemporary perceptions and representations of him, uh, both in political and non-political contexts?
7: I have a particular view on this as a a college professor who gives a syllabus every semester and lays out the plan for the semester. And it's inevitable that somebody comes in there, uh, a student will come towards the end of the semester. It's like, well, how do I, what's the understanding of my grades? Like uh, it's right here in the syllabus. So of course, Dr. King's message is used both positively and negatively Um, for the speaker's purposes. Uh, Looking at the latter part of his life and his opposition to the war in Vietnam, uh, it was partially in solidarity with the Vietnamese who were pawns in a larger uh, global war, looking towards his message of being judged by their character. And, you know, what... you people take as his dream. Yes, that was his dream, but the dream is also be judged on your character because you were not judged on your race, that you were seen as a fully realized human, regardless of your race, not because of your race. So yes, when you say, yes, Dr. King was talking about being judged on the character, but that presumes that you are being judged equally and fairly and treated fairly. So yes, yes, Dr. King's message has been Uh, manipulated and short-sighted, and if you read the full letter from the Birmingham jail, he calls out white moderates who stand by and do not help African Americans and others seeking justice. So yeah, Dr. King's message is definitely manipulated, Um, and it does take a little bit of effort to really look at reading his speeches, listening to his speeches. You can go on YouTube and listen to the whole speech at the march on Washington. Listen to the whole uh, the speech he gave the night before he was assassinated. Listen to his justifications for why they're doing nonviolent protests. He has plenty of his own writings, plenty of his own speaking, but it's much easier to take a quote that you find on Google and adapt it to your purposes.
1: I've had many amazing interviews over the last year, and I hope when the RMR returns in the fall, many more amazing interviews will follow. That's it for the highlights, but stay tuned to hear more of the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
0: Now we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. These are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports over 3,200 cases of COVID-19 since reporting began in May 2020. Cases continue to go down among CSU community members due to students being sent home, and the university continues to prepare for an in-person fall semester. Larimer County reports a medium risk score and a cautious ranking on the county's dial risk assessment, The county reports over 25,000 cases of COVID-19 and 237 deaths, along with 523 outbreaks. Larimer County distributed over 300,000 vaccines as of Wednesday night and has a current case rate of 130 cases per 100,000 residents. 43 COVID-19 patients received treatment in area hospitals, and intensive care utilization started to go up again with 80% capacity. Of all COVID-19 tests administered in Larimer County, Around 4.4% come back positive on average. The state of Colorado reports over 517,000 COVID-19 cases and over 6,400 deaths due to COVID-19. 2.8 million people received testing in the state, which reports over 5,000 outbreaks. 2.5 million people in Colorado have been immunized with one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, and almost 2 million people are fully immunized in the state. The United States reports over 32.5 million cases nationally, along with over 578,000 deaths. On Wednesday, cases increased by over 46,000, and 701 more deaths were reported. In the past two weeks, cases decreased by 26% and deaths decreased by 3%. 32% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, and 45% received at least one dose of an approved vaccine. The best methods in COVID 19 prevention for those not currently immune to the virus through vaccination include washing your hands regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing face masks, and keeping social distance from others outside your household. KCSU reminds listeners that face masks are required in public regardless of vaccination status, and vaccinated individuals can still be asymptomatic carriers of COVID 19. Information from this segment comes from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and the New York Times. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Now for tech news. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is tech news for Thursday. Facebook's oversight board, which was originally assigned to decide whether or not former President Donald Trump would be permanently banned from Facebook, upheld the decision to remove him after the January 6th riots. According to Matt O'Brien and Barbara Ortute at the Associated Press, This decision reportedly does not intend to permanently ban Trump from the platform. The Oversight Board said that a permanent ban on Trump was unreasonable and that his reinstatement will have to be discussed later on. The board agreed with Facebook moderators that Trump violated standards of both Instagram and Facebook by praising and supporting violent individuals and groups, but the board also said that Facebook needed to make rules equal for all users and make sure that political leaders know they are not exempt from policies on the platform. Some members of the board also explain that they think Facebook should either make his ban permanent or give a specific time period in which he is banned from the platform, as the current situation becomes more complicated without a clear end date. The west coast of the United States now has access to the earthquake early warning system. According to Jacqueline Diaz and Vanessa Romo at National Public Radio, as of 8 a.m. on Tuesday this week, California, Oregon, and Washington residents now will receive warnings prior to seismic events. The West Coast is the most earthquake-prone region in the United States, with major fault lines. ShakeAlert, a project of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, alerts people with enough time to make life-saving decisions. According to David Applegate, the acting director of the U.S. Geological Survey, quote, ShakeAlert can turn mere seconds into opportunities for people to take life-saving, protective actions and for applications to trigger automated actions that protect critical infrastructure, end quote. The alert can also warn cell phone users of aftershocks following earthquakes, and the alerts go through the same smartphone system as Amber Alerts. That's all for tech news. We'll be right back with Weird News with Ivy Winfrey, so stay tuned on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
1: Hello there my name is ivy winfrey and you're listening to 90.5 kcsu fort collins sometimes things are just weird so here's a few of the weirdest stories i've found from around the world today an australian shark attack survivor has won the legal right to keep the shark teeth embedded in his surfboard from the attack According to the BBC, surfer Chris Blows lost his leg and was in a coma for 10 days after he was attacked in South Australia in 2015. Mr. Blows, now 32, was surfing at Fishery Bay in April 2015 when an 18-foot-long great white shark struck him from behind. After being brought to shore by two friends, Mr. Blows was treated by paramedics and taken to hospital in Adelaide. When police went to recover his surfboard, Mr. Blows says they found a shark tooth lodged in it. Following South Australia law, they handed it in to the authorities. Under the state's Fisheries Management Act, it is legal to possess, sell, or purchase any part of white sharks, and those who breach the law can face a fine of up to one hundred thousand Australian dollars or two years in prison. Mr. Blows said he asked officials several times if he could have the tooth returned, but it was only after a local politician heard about the, his case that a exemption was granted. Mr. Blows says, quote, it was stuck in my board. I would never kill a shark for its tooth, but it took my leg, so I can't see any reason why I can't have that. The shark isn't getting its tooth back, and I'm not getting my leg back, end quote. Now, finally, Blows has been granted an exemption. It is the first time the state has granted an exemption to the act, according to the Australian Department of Primary Industries and Regions. Mr. Blows says he was keeping the tooth in in a case in his house and is taking it along to motivational talks he gives about the attack. A UK woman's Uber driver charged her for her ride, despite the fact that the ride ended when the car drove into a canal. According to Paige Oldfield at the Manchester Evening News, Emma Lavelle was receiving an Uber ride in the early hours of April April 11th. Lavelle says she noticed her Uber driver driving towards the Bridgewater Canal in Eccles, Manchester, and told him to stop, but the driver allegedly ignored her pleas and turned left, driving the car straight into the water. He later told police he'd been following his GPS. Emma, a transport manager from Eccles, says she managed to get out of the vehicle and was told to walk the rest of the journey. After making the trip home, she realized she had still been charged 29 euros for the trip. Both Emma and the driver escaped the vehicle unhurt. Police were called to eventually recover the car from the water. Emma says she has since received a refund from Uber for the journey, but only after appearing on the news, saying, quote, I emailed them on Sunday saying I was involved in an accident and still had been charged. They said they would investigate, but no one came back to me. Then it was on the news, I contacted them again with the article, and they emailed me to say they would give me a refund. End quote. The state of New Jersey is offering residents free beer if they get vaccinated in a push to get as many people immunized as possible. According to Ivan Piera at ABC News, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy announced a shot in a beer program Monday that provides a free glass of beer at participating locations to anyone over 21 who gets their first vaccination dose this month. The plan is part of Murphy's multi-pronged approach to increasing the state's vaccination numbers and reach its goal of 4.7 million residents vaccinated by the end of June. As of Monday, more than 75, uh, 7.5 million vaccine doses have been administered in New Jersey, and 3.2 million residents, or about 37% of the state's total population, have been fully vaccinated, according to the New Jersey's Health Department. Like most parts of the country, the number of new daily vaccinations has steadily declined over the last few weeks. As a part of the Shot in a Beer program, the vaccinated resident can show their vaccination card to 13 participating bars and breweries in the state, and they will be rewarded with one free beer new jersey's beer promotion comes less than a week after connecticut governor ned lamont announced a similar promotion for his state however the connecticut promotion doesn't limit the free beers to residents who receive shot in may dr perry and halkett Dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health, says that incentives are common in science, particularly among clinical trials and studies, and they do appeal to hesitant people. While New Jersey's beer program won't likely end vaccine hesitancy, he said, it'll bring the state closer to a fully vaccinated population and cut down on COVID-19 cases. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is going to be my last weird news for the semester. So for all of you who are graduating and all of you who are going to be experiencing summer break, I just want to remind y'all to stay weird. And now for the weather.
0: I'm Coda Babcock, and welcome to our final weather report for the semester. Today was warm and sunny with a high of 70 and a low of 42, and Friday will warm up even more to a high of 79 with a low of 47 and partly cloudy skies. Saturday will be warm but rainy with a high of 70 and a low of 39, and Sunday will cool down to a high of 55 and a low of 38, continuing with scattered showers throughout the day. We're so glad you've been here with us this semester. Information for this report comes from the Weather Channel.
1: And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right... now.
0: We'd like to thank Thomas Taylor, Portia Cook, Asher Korn, Stephanie Kiel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmurati, Lindsey Johnson, Sam Benefe, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't have made this show
1: this semester without all of you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listeners. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you in August.